After reciting the Tashahud, Tawuz and Surah Al-Fatiha, Hazrat Khalifatul Masih V, Ayyadahullah Ta'ala bin Asrihil Aziz stated, that the incident regarding the killing of Asma was mentioned in the previous sermon and I also mentioned that there is a similar incident. The other incident also seems to be a mere fabrication and this relates to the killing of a Jewish man called Abu Afaq. It is mentioned that the killing of Abu Afaq is another fictitious incident which has been recorded in the books of history. And the details that are mentioned regarding this incident are as follows. That one day the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, said to the companions that who can settle the matter of this wretched man, i.e. Abu Afaq, on my behalf? That is, who can kill him? Abu Afaq was an extremely old man and it is said that he was 120 years of age. However, this individual would instigate people against the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and would use foul and abusive language in his poetry against the Holy Prophet Upon the instruction of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, Hazrat Salim bin Umar stood up and he was among those people who would weep profusely due to the fear of Allah the Almighty. He also participated in the Battle of Badr. And so Hazrat Salim said that I vow to either kill Abu Afaq or then to give up my life while trying to kill him. And so, following this, Hazrat Salim bin Umar remained in search for the opportunity to kill him. And one day, at night in the intense heat, Abu Afaq was sleeping in the garden in the courtyard of his house. And Hazrat Salim came to know of this and he immediately set off. When Hazrat Salim reached his house, he placed his sword on the liver of Abu Afaq and pushed it down with all of his weight so much so that it pierced his stomach and got stuck in his bed. At the same time, 
the enemy of God, Abu Afaq, let out a harrowing scream. Hazrat Salim left him in this very state and left from there. And hearing Abu Afaq scream, people immediately came running and some of his friends immediately took him inside. However, this enemy of God was unable to recover from this deep wound and died as a result. Now this particular incident has been recorded as such in one of the books of history. However, like the previous incident, this incident too has not been related through a reliable chain and it is not mentioned in the Siha Sitta either, that is the six authentic books of the Hadith. It can, however, be found in some books of history such as Siratul Halabiya, Shara Zurqani, Tabakatul Kubra by Ibn Saad, Siratul Nabawiya by Ibn Hisham, Al-Badaya wa Nihaya, Kitabul Maghazi by Waqti, and Subulul Huda wa Rishad, etc. However, it is not recorded in most books of history such as Al-Kamil fi Tariq, Tariq Tabari, Tariq ibn Khaldun, etc. However, as stated earlier, it is mentioned in some books of history. In relation to this incident, similar to the incident of Asma, people have testified to the fact that he would incite people to oppose and be hostile towards the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. And following the Battle of Badr, his malice and rancor intensified and he openly began to rebel. And the contradictions within the narrations relating to the killing of Abu Afaq also make this incident doubtful. First of all, there is a discrepancy regarding the person who killed him. According to Ibn Saad and Waqdi, Salim bin Umar killed Abu Afaq Whereas in some other narrations, Salim bin Umar is mentioned and according to Ibn Uqba, Salim bin Abdullah bin Sabit Ansari killed him. Secondly, there are discrepancies in the reasons for the killing. According to Ibn Hisham and Waqdi, Salim out of his fervour killed him himself. Whereas according to some other narrations, it was upon the instructions of the Holy Prophet peace and blessings of Allah be upon him that he killed him. And Ibn Hisham has written thus. The third aspect is in relation to the religious difference. According to Ibn Saad, Abu Afaq was a Jew, whereas Waqdi was of the opinion that he was not a Jew. Then there are also discrepancies in the time of the killing. According to Waqdi and Ibn Saad, this incident took place after the killing of Asma bint Marwan whilst according to Ibn Ishaq and Ibn Hisham etc, this incident took place prior to the killing of Asma. And so it is evident from these clear contradictions that this incident is fabricated and made up and is not based on reality. And if, for argument's sake, it is considered that Abu Afaq was indeed killed, then his other crimes such as inciting to kill the leader of the state, reciting satirical couplets whilst provoking war, endangering the public peace and igniting the flame of war were all sufficient for the death penalty, for which even today the death penalty is given to those against whom it is proven that they have committed treason against the government. And it cannot be that mere cursing was the reason for his killing. Likewise, just as is the case with the incident of Asma, 
There is no evidence of any reaction from the Jews here too with the killing of Abu Afaq. There must have been some sort of reaction from the Jews upon his death, yet there is no proof of such a reaction. Hence, their silence upon this incident is conclusive proof that this has been fabricated. It is also noteworthy that it is said that these incidents took place prior to the Battle of Badr or immediately after. They either happened sometime before or just after. And all of the historians agree that the very first altercation between the Muslims and the Jews was the Ghazwa of Banu Qanqa. And so, if some other incident had taken place before this, then these historians would have surely mentioned in relation to this that such an incident took place whereupon the killings of Abu Afaq and Asma, the Jews had the right to raise an allegation against the Muslims that they had initiated the practical altercation. Yet, there is no mention anywhere of the Jews of Medina bringing forward these incidents or raising such an allegation. Hazrat Mizza Bashir Ahmed Sahib has written in the life and character of the Seal of Prophets in relation to the fabricated incidents of the killing of Asma and Abu Afaq. He writes that after the events of the Battle of Badr, Baqti and other historians have written two incidents which are nowhere to be found amongst the books of a hadith and authentic historical records. And even if a person contemplates in terms of dirayat, i.e. looking at its content and subject, they do not prove to be correct. However, since they furnish an apparent means for levelling an allegation against the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, therefore various Christian historians, as per their habit, have alluded to these instances in a very unpleasant manner. The first of these fabricated incidents relates to a lady named Asma who used to reside in Medina. Here there is mention of Asma once again. And it is said she was a staunch enemy of Islam. She would speak ill of the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, and would greatly incite people against the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, through her provocative couplets, and would inflame people to murder the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Finally, in his rage, a blind companion named Umar bin Adi killed her whilst she was in her home at night, during her sleep. And it is said that when the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, was informed of this occurrence, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, did not reprimand him. Rather, in a way, he even commended the action. However, to say that the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, commended his action, does not mean that it actually happened. In fact, I have already proved this incident to be completely false. Then he further states that the second incident which has been mentioned is that of an elderly Jewish man named Abu Afaq who lived in Medina. This person would also recite provocative couplets against the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and would incite the disbelievers to wage war against the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and to assassinate him. Eventually, he too was killed by a companion named Salim bin Umar in his fury during the night whilst he was in the veranda of his own home. This is what has been narrated. And Hazrat Mizza Bashir Ahmed Sahib further writes, Vaqdi and Ibn Hisham have even written some of the provocative couplets which Asma and Abu Afaq had composed against the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Sir William Mew and others have embellished their books with these two incidents in a very unpleasant manner. The Orientalists have taken these and used them as an excuse to show how much injustice was perpetrated. 
However, the truth is that in the face of scrutiny and criticism, these incidents cannot even be proven to have occurred at all. The first argument which puts the authenticity of these two incidents into question is that they are nowhere to be found amongst the books of a hadith. In other words, there is not a single hadith in which an occurrence of this nature has been related, along with the names of the assassin or victim. As a matter of fact, putting the hadith to one side, even various historians have not alluded to these incidents. Whereas if incidents of this nature had actually taken place, there was no reason for the books of hadith and various books of history to be empty of their mention. At this instance, it cannot be speculated that since an allegation fell upon the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him and his companions, may Allah be pleased with them, the muhaddisin and various historians probably omitted these occurrences. The reason being that firstly, the circumstances in which these occurrences took place are not objectionable. If one takes into consideration how much he was provoking and inciting against the government, even then it would not have been objectionable had this actually taken place. Therefore, it is incorrect to allege that the historians and muhaddisin did not mention this on the basis of it being a criticism of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Secondly, any individual who possesses even an elementary study of the ahadith and history cannot be oblivious to the fact that the Muslim muhaddisin and other historians have never omitted a narration merely on the basis that it may apparently seem to raise an objection against Islam or the founder of Islam. Their show practice was that they would never be reluctant at all in relating whatever they found to be authentic in terms of rivayat, i.e. the narration, merely due to its subject matter. As a matter of fact, the practice of some of the muhaddisin and most historians was that they would honestly include within their collections any narration at all which reached them regarding the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, and his companions, even if it was weak and unreliable, both in terms of rivayat and dirayat. They would then leave it to the judgment of the theologians and research scholars of later times to distinguish between authentic and weak narrations for themselves. Moreover, in doing so, their intention was that anything at all which was attributed to the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him and his companions, whether it seemed to be true or false, should not be omitted from inclusion. It is for this reason that all kinds of reliable and unreliable narrations have been gathered in the early works of history. However, this does not mean that all of it is acceptable. Rather, now it is our work to differentiate between the weak and authentic. In any case, there is not even an iota of doubt that any Muslim muhaddis or historian ever disregarded a narration merely on the basis that apparently it seemed at odds with the greatness of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, or his companions, or because an allegation fell upon the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, or Islam as a result. As such, the executions of Ka'b bin Ashraf and Abu Rafi the Jew, which completely resemble the so-called incidents of Asma and Abu Afaq, have been mentioned in all the books of Ahadith and history with full clarity and detail, and no Muslim narrator, muhaddis or historian has neglected to mention them. In these circumstances, since the execution of Asma and Abu Afaq the Jew, have not been mentioned in any hadith, and then the various historians from among the early historians are also silent with regards to this issue, it is almost clearly established that these are fabricated tales which have somehow found way into various narrations and thus become a part of history.
Then, if one studies the details of these tales, their fabricated nature becomes even more evident. For example, in the tale of Asma, the name of the assassin, as related by Ibn Saad and others, is Umair bin Adi. However, in contrast, the name of the assassin, as related by Ibn Durad, is not Umair bin Adi, rather the name is Ghashmir. Suheli declares both of these names as being incorrect and asserts that in actuality Asma was killed by her own husband, whose name has been related as Yazid bin Zaid in various narrations. Then, in other narrations, it is related that none of the above-mentioned people killed Asma. Rather, the assassin was an anonymous person who belonged to her own people. Ibn Saad and others have named the victim as being Asma bint Marwan, but there is a statement of Alama ibn Abdul Bar that she was not Asma bint Marwan, but in fact Umar killed his own sister, whose name was bint Adi. Furthermore, Ibn Saad has written that the killing took place in the middle part of the night. However, the narration of Zarqani establishes that the account took place during the day, or at most in the early part of the night, because the narrations mention that at the time the victim was selling dates, and I have mentioned all these details already. Then the second incident, which is being narrated presently, is the execution of Abu Afaq. For this occurrence, Ibn Saad, Baqdi and others have written that the assassin's name was Salim bin Umar. However, in some narrations, his name has been recorded as Salim bin Amr, while Ibn Uqba has mentioned the name Salim bin Abdullah. Similarly, with respect to the victim, Abu Afaq, Ibn Saad has written that he was a Jew, while Waqdi has not described him as such. Then it is ascertained from both Ibn Saad and Waqdi that Salim killed Abu Afaq out of anger by his own accord. However, in one narration it has been related that he was executed upon the instruction of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Even with respect to the time of the execution, Ibn Saad and Waqdi place it after the execution of Asma. However, Ibn Ishaq and Abu Rabi state that it occurred prior to the execution of Asma. All of these contradictions result in the strong doubt that these tales are fabricated and false, or if there is some truth in them, it is so obscure that a statement cannot be passed with respect to its details and nature. Another argument which establishes these incidents as being false is that the era in which both these tales are said to have taken place is one with respect to which all historians are unanimous that until that time no confrontation or dispute had yet arisen between the Muslims and the Jews. History establishes that the Ghazwa of Banu Kanka, which was the very first battle that took place between the Muslims and Jews, and that the Jews of Banu Kanka were the first ones to practically step forward in their enmity towards Islam. And so how can it be accepted that prior to this Ghazwa, such killing and bloodshed had taken place between the Jews and Muslims. Furthermore, if such events had in fact transpired prior to the Ghazwa of Banu Kanaka, then it was impossible for them to not have been listed amongst the factors leading up to this Ghazwa. When the reasons for the battle have been mentioned, these particular incidents have not been mentioned, but it should have been written that these two people were killed. In the least, the Jewish people, who could have capitalized on an apparent opportunity to raise an allegation against the Muslims on the basis of these events, that it was the Muslims who initially provoked physical conflict, would have raised an outcry over these incidents. Yet, in no historical record 
and even in the works of these historians who have transmitted these tales, there is absolutely no mention whatsoever that the Jews of Medina ever raised such an allegation. And if someone believes that perhaps they did raise an objection, but Muslim historians conveniently omitted it, then this would be an erroneous and baseless notion. For as already mentioned, no Muslim muhaddis or historian has ever placed a veil upon any allegation levelled by an opponent. For example, in the incident of the Syria of Nakhla, when the idolaters of Makkah raised an objection against the Muslims for dishonouring the sacred months, Muslim historians recorded this allegation in their books with unprecedented integrity. Hence, if any such allegation had been raised by the Jews on this occasion, then historical records would not have been empty of its mention. Therefore, these tales do not prove to be correct from any perspective of analysis. And it seems as if a hidden enemy of Islam either related these tales whilst attributing them to some Muslim, and then they found way of inclusion in the narrations of the Muslims, or perhaps a weak Muslim included these narrations into the historical record in order to attribute the false pride towards his own tribe that such men as were related to him killed various harmful disbelievers. But Allah knows best. This is the actual reality which is ascertained with respect to these incidents. However, as it has been indicated previously, even if these occurrences were true, they cannot be considered objectionable under the circumstances in which they took place. In those days, the vulnerable state with which the Muslims were confronted has already been described previously. And their state was exactly like that of a person who becomes surrounded in such a place which is engulfed by a dangerously blazing fire on all four sides to as far as one can see. And he has no place of escape. And such people are standing beside him which are thirsty for his blood. And so, in this extremely vulnerable state of the Muslims, if an evil and mischievous person incites people against their master and chief by reciting provocative couplets and provokes his enemies to assassinate him, then what other solution could there have been in the circumstances of that era except for putting an end to such a person? Then this action was performed by the Muslims only in a state of extreme provocation, a state in which a minor killing cannot be considered enough for retribution. As such, even an individual like Mr. Margolius, he is also an Orientalist, who generally takes an opposing stance on every matter, does not hold the Muslims worthy of condemnation on account of these incidents. Hence, Mr. Margolius writes, Since, if the verses ascribed to Asma be genuine, she had deliberately incited the people of Medina to a murderous attack on the Prophet, peace be upon him, her execution would not have been an inexcusably ruthless measure, judged by any standard. Mr. Margolius further writes, and it must not be forgotten, that satire was a far more effective weapon in Arabia than elsewhere. And from the fact that only the culprit suffered, it was a decided improvement on the existing system. That is, only the perpetrator was killed and not others as well. 
That is, because satire on an individual meant war between whole tribes. Mr. Margolius further writes, In place of this, the principle that each person shall suffer for his own fault and not their friends or relatives was introduced by Islam instead. As Mr. Bashir Ahmed Sahib writes, that if Mr. Margolius has any objection with respect to these executions, it is only with regards to the manner in which they were carried out. In other words, why they were not officially executed after the formal announcement of their crimes. The first answer to this is that even if these incidents are deemed as being true, they were the individual actions of certain Muslims themselves, which were committed by them after they had been immensely provoked. The Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, did not order these actions, and this is categorically established by the record of Ibn Saab. Secondly, if hypothetically it is accepted that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, had ordered these actions, even still, the circumstances of that era were most definitely such that if an official judgment had been formally passed with regards to the execution of Asma and Abu Afaq, and the relatives of the criminals were to have been informed in advance that their people were to be executed, this could have entailed dangerous consequences. Furthermore, there was also strong apprehension of the fact that these incidents could have set ablaze a vast fire of war between the Muslims and Jews, and even between the Muslims and idolaters of Medina. As Ms. Zabashir Ahmed Sahib further writes, It is strange that while Mr. Margolius has considered the mere action of killing to be permissible in light of the specific circumstances of Arabia at the time, why then, with respect to the method of execution, was his observation unable to take into account the specific circumstances of that era? In this regard as well, if we had taken into account the specific circumstances of that era, perhaps he would have been convinced that the method employed was most appropriate and necessary for the circumstances of that era and in the interest of the public peace. But these didn't practically take place. In summary, firstly, the incidents of the execution of Asma and Abu Afaq the Jew do not even hold to be true in terms of rivayat and dirayat. And then, if they are hypothetically accepted as being true, they cannot be considered objectionable in light of the circumstances of that era. Then, whatever the case may be, these killings were the individual actions of certain Muslims which were committed by them after they had been seriously provoked and the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him, did not issue any such order. This allegation is completely baseless that the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, had given orders to kill them. These are all fabricated statements which have been attributed to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. The historians have documented all these accounts However, later on, the accounts ought to have been properly assessed. And we are thankful to Allah the Almighty, and it is His favour upon us, for He has enabled us to accept the Imam of the age. And as a result, we carefully assess and reflect over every matter and present it after understanding the true facts of the matter. And we strive to provide rebuttal against any allegation that is levelled against the Holy Prophet, peace and blessings of Allah be upon him. May Allah the Almighty grant wisdom to these ulama who spread such false notions in order to fulfill their vested interests and defame Islam as a result. They claim to be serving Islam, yet in reality their actions have led to extremism. May Allah the Almighty grant them wisdom.
I shall now mention some details of some deceased members. The first mention is of Professor Dr. Nasir Ahmed Khan Sahib, who was more commonly known by the name of Parvez Parvazi Sahib. He recently passed away in Canada at the age of 87. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. Verily to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. He was born in Qadian and his father's name was Mulana Ahmad Khan Sahib Naseeb who was a missionary and he served as Nazir Islam Rashad Muqami for a long period of time. His father had a very outstanding personality and had helped organize the various Jamaats. The deceased's mother was Rahmat Bibi. Parvazi Sahib attained his early education in Qadian and after his matriculation exams he did not go to college because at the time the Talimul Islam College was in Lahore but later when the college relocated to Rabwa he enrolled in the college. In 1958 he attained a BA honours degree and in 1960 he acquired his MA from the University Oriental College he then obtained his PhD from Punjab University in 1968. Professor Nasir Parvazi Sahib also attained an MA in Urdu and thereafter was appointed as a lecturer. He began his teaching career at a government college in Muzaffargarh and he also began to make literary contributions and his articles were published in Al-Fazl, the monthly Misbah, Khalid, etc. He also had a keen interest in poetry and produced very good poetic works. Later, when the Talimul Islam College was established in Rabwa, he dedicated his life for the service of Islam and joined the college and he continued to serve as a lecturer until 1969. He was appointed as the head of the Urdu department in Talimul Islam College Rabwa from 1969 to 1975. Then from 1975 to 1995 he also helped with regards to the establishment of the Jamaat in Tokyo. In 1979, he returned to Pakistan and after the nationalization of the colleges, he worked in different colleges in Pakistan as an assistant professor. From 1986 to 1990, he taught as an assistant professor in Government College, Faisalabad. And due to being an Ahmadi, he had to endure a lot of hardships during this period. In the end, when the situation worsened to the point that he was even arrested, he left everything and came to the UK. He met Hazrat Khalifatul Masih IV, Rahimahullah, and upon his instructions he migrated to Sweden, where he worked as a professor in Uppsala University in Sweden from 1991 to 2001. During his tenure in Sweden, he also had the opportunity to be a member of the Nobel Prize Committee for Literature and continued to serve in this role for 16 years. In 2003, he migrated to Canada. He is extremely well known in the field of literature and academia. 
His wife is Amatul Majid Sahiba, the daughter of Maulvi Muhammad Ahmad Sahib Jalil, and Allah the Almighty blessed them with two sons and three daughters. His wife says that we were together for a total of 63 years and he continuously gave me full support in every moment in prosperity and hardship, happiness and sadness. Since I was the eldest daughter of my parents and I remained in Rabwa, Professor Parvazi Sahib never stopped me from serving them. In fact, he served them even more than me. He fulfilled his relations with my family members, in other words, relations from the wife's family, in an exemplary manner. She further says that he was an outstanding example of giving like kindred, i.e. ta'id al-qurba, and he would treat all his relations with great love and sincerity. He would take part in all the occasions of happiness and sadness. His son, Tahir Ahmed Khan, says, that whatever the circumstances may be, he always had a smile on his face. He had immense love for Khilafat Ahmadiyya. And until his last breath, he had this connection with me and would request for prayers. Recently, his health took a turn for the worse and the doctors had given up hope and it was very difficult for him to write. Initially, he sent messages for prayers and then at times he would send a handwritten letter which was barely legible that he would write whilst lying down in his bed. He had a bond of great loyalty and sincerity. With regards to his stay in Japan, his son writes that my father won a prize of an encyclopedia which was a very prestigious prize at the time. And he later donated it to the Khilafat Library. He then writes that in the 80s, he was awarded the Alama Iqbal Gold Medal for Literature, but because he was an Ahmadi, he was not called for the ceremony and instead his medal was sent home. His daughter, Amatul Wadud, says that my father loved the Holy Quran daily. He would recite one part of the Qur'an every day without fail. She further says that if I ever needed a reference for an article or a speech, in an instant he would tell me to search for such and such verse and chapter. She further says that our father instilled the love of Khilafat within us and he gave us the confidence that we could express what was in our hearts and establish a bond with the Khalifa. His other daughter, Sadia, says, that my father was an ardent devotee of Khilafat. Through his actions and his conduct, one would always sense a deep bond of love and respect for Khilafat. We have seen that before every action, our father would write a letter to the Khalifa requesting for prayers. And in his final days of illness, when the doctors had expressed their concerns and were not very hopeful, as soon as he left the doctor's room, he asked for a pen and a paper, and despite the fact that his hands were extremely weak and were shaking, he wrote a letter for prayers. As I have mentioned earlier, he would write regularly to me. She further writes, he would sacrifice a lot in giving charity, and whatever amount he would have, he would give it away in charity. Then his maternal granddaughter, Naila, says that through my dada, if he is her dada, then she would be his paternal granddaughter. 
In any case, she says that I learned what the meaning of faith is and how one can truly love Allah the Almighty. In fact, she is the maternal granddaughter as he was her nana, i.e. maternal grandfather, and Zafar Mahmood is her father. She says that through him one can see how one can truly love Allah the Almighty. She further says, I was surprised to see his condition and how until his last breath he would constantly recite all praise belongs to Allah, all praise belongs to Allah by raising his index finger. He was reciting all praise belongs to Allah, i.e. Alhamdulillah, until the very end. She then says, upon seeing his love, a flame was lit within me and I desired that the love he had for Allah the Almighty, the Holy Quran and Khilafat would be instilled within me as well. May Allah the Almighty bestow his forgiveness and mercy upon the deceased and may his children and progeny have the opportunity to carry on his virtuous deeds. The next mention is of Sharif Ahmed Sahib Bhatti, the son of Amir Khan Sahib Bhatti of Rabwa, Pakistan. He passed away recently at the age of 88. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. The deceased was a Musi and he is survived by his wife, two sons and two daughters. One of his sons works in the Hifazate Markaz and the other son, Tahir Ahmed Bhatti, is serving as a missionary in Sierra Leone. His son, Tahir Bhatti Sahib, who is a missionary, writes that my father used to tell us that when the prophecy of the death of Pandit Lekram was fulfilled, at the time his own father, respected Amir Khan Sahib Bhatti, was a young boy. He would say that when this prophecy was fulfilled, the truthfulness of Ahmadiyyat became etched in his heart, but owing to his young age, he was unable to go to Qadiyan and was unable to pledge allegiance. Later, he pledged allegiance, I did the bad at the hands of Hazrat Khalifatul Masih I, radiallahu ta'ala anhu, and entered the fold of Ahmadiyyat. In 1974, owing to the disturbances and riots against Ahmadis, he had to leave Lalia and settled in Rabwa. He used to work in textile mills, but he never kept the fact that he was an Ahmadi hidden from anyone. Wherever he would work, he would tell them from the first day that he was an Ahmadi, and if they wished to associate with him, then that is fine, as he would always identify as an Ahmadi. His brother Latif Ahmed Saib, who resides in Germany, says, He used to work in a textile mill. An opponent of Ahmadiyyat came into his department and said to him, that I have come to know that you are an Ahmadi. Upon this he replied that indeed he was an Ahmadi. And to this the man started to speak ill against the promised Messiah And the opponent even said that now either you will stay in this mill or I will. And he made great efforts to persuade the owner of the mill and to create further unrest. The deceased immediately began to pray, supplicating that, O oh Allah, help me for the sake of your promised Messiah and cause this mischief to fail. He says that after a while, someone came to him and informed him that the person who was being disrespectful to him earlier was sitting outside the mill in distress and the owner of the mill had caught him stealing during one of his transactions and fired him from the mill. The deceased was regular in offering the tahajjud prayers and the five daily prayers and always remained engaged in supplication. He read the literature of the community extensively and especially after his retirement, he started to read even more. A book from our community's literature was always by his bedside and he remained engaged in studying it. 
And whenever the Khulafa of Ahmadiyyat would draw attention towards particular prayers, he would immediately take part. He recited the Durud Sharif, i.e. sending salutations upon the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, very frequently. His son, who is a missionary, says, And when I was in sixth grade, he would tell me to recite the Durud Sharif on my way to and back from school. He also referred to himself, in other words, Ayyubhati Sahib said, that by the grace of Allah the Almighty, he recited the Durud Sharif more than a thousand times in a day. May Allah the Almighty grant him forgiveness and mercy, and may he enable his children to carry on his virtues. The next mention is of Professor Abdul Qadir Dari Sahib, the former Mir Jamaat of Nawab Shah district. He passed away at the age of 92. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. Verily to Allah we belong and to him shall we return. He is survived by his son and five daughters. His son Samar Ahmed writes that his family entered the fold of Ahmadiyyat through the deceased late father, Rais Muhammad Mukim Khan Dari Sahib. Abdul Qadir Sahib was a very brave and honest person. His son then further writes, he never hesitated to sit amidst the lower class of society, even though it was considered objectionable according to the customs of that area to have the poorer class sit amongst you equally. He acquired a master's degree in Sindhi literature from the university. In that era, there was a shortage of educational institutions in Sindh, and so owing to his passion for education, he began working as a lecturer at a college in Hyderabad. Upon witnessing his passion for teaching, the principal there told him to open an educational institute in Nawabshah and to hold evening classes there. And so those classes commenced and found great success. And thereafter, the institute became a college and was numbered amongst the renowned colleges of Sindh. And this was all due to his efforts. Similarly, he also had very good relations with the Sindh's major politicians and their families. And he would openly tell them that he was from the Ahmadiyya community and he also advised his children never to conceal their faith in Ahmadiyyat. He always said in the Sindhi language that they were wearing the jewels of Ahmadiyyat, which was their distinguishing quality. He also had the honour of translating the Holy Quran into the Sindhi language upon the instruction of Hazrat Khalifatul Masih the third rahimahullah, and also upon the instruction of Hazrat Khalifatul Masih the third rahimahullah. He had the opportunity of translating Tafsir al-Sagheer into the Sindhi language, which comprised two volumes. Due to the translation of the Holy Quran and the publication of a pamphlet on selected verses of the Holy Quran, under Section 295C, a lawsuit was filed against Hazrat Khalifatul Masih IV rahimahullah, and four other individuals, which included him. Apart from the Sindhi language, he had extensive expertise in the Urdu language to the degree that whoever he wrote to was greatly impacted by his writing. He was also a member of the Fazli Umar Foundation and PhD students from universities would come to seek consultation from him. He had a very vast circle of acquaintances. He also wrote a book in the Sindhi language that holds great importance in terms of guiding teaching experts and students alike. Furthermore, there were some words of mockery used in the dictionary whilst referring to the Dahri tribe in Sindh. 
and in light of the commandments of the Holy Qur'an, he persuaded the government officials with many arguments and had those discriminatory terms permanently removed from the dictionary. May Allah the Almighty grant him forgiveness and grant him his mercy, and may he also enable his children to carry on his virtues. Another mention is of Professor Dr. Muhammad Sharif Khan Sahib, who was currently residing in USA. He passed away at the age of 84. Inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. By the grace of Allah the Almighty, he was a Musi. He was born in 1939 in Tanzania, and Ahmadiyyat was introduced to his family through his father, Dr. Habibullah Khan Sahib, who accepted Ahmadiyyat in Tanzania. Sharif Khan Sahib obtained his primary education from Qadian and as a result of the sermons delivered by Hazrat Muslim Maud in 1954 and 1955, he dedicated his life to serve Islam when he was in the 8th grade. Then in 1963 he obtained his MSc in Zoology with a gold medal and then in 1996 he completed his PhD in Zoology from the Punjab University. Then, according to the instructions of Hazrat Khalifatul Masih III, Rahimahullah, he served at the Talimul Islam College in 1963 till his retirement in 1998, and he served for a period of 35 years. The deceased had about 250 research papers published in publications around the world, and his first research paper was published in 1972 which was on the subject of reptiles. He used to do a lot of research and he had done a great deal of research on snakes, lizards and insects and other animals. I was also his student and he would take our class outside and he would show us various aspects of nature and the various insects found therein along with their various types. In 2002, he was awarded Zoologist of the Year in Pakistan. Mujibullah Chaudhry Sahib of USA writes that in 2008, I spoke to him about collecting funds for the mosque to which he said that we don't have anything to offer. However, he invited me to their home. And so when I went to their home, his wife placed a bundle of jewellery before me, including whatever she had received from her parents or her in-laws. And they said that this should be accepted on their behalf. He was an extremely kind and humble person, and he always treated his students like his friends. May Allah the Almighty grant him his forgiveness and mercy. Some further details were sent in later on and his eldest son Zafrullah Sahib writes that some scientists from USA and Canada came to Rabwa to meet Professor Dr. Sharif Khan Sahib and according to those scientists there was no greater expert in Pakistan than Sharif Khan Sahib when it came to reptology or the study of reptiles. He indeed was a great expert in this regard. His son Rashid Zubair says 
that he was regular in offering tahajjud and keeping fasts from a young age. And he would even lead prayers in the Qamar Mosque. And aside from offering prayers in congregation, he also regularly recited the Holy Qur'an and had a passion for studying its commentary. His studies in this regard were extremely vast. His grandson, Mashud Ahmad Khan, says that our grandfather was a very spiritual person and had deep scientific knowledge. He taught us that the proof for God's existence can be found in one's nature. He placed great emphasis on offering prayers on time and also on studying the Holy Qur'an. He further says that he had a great deal of love for Khilafat Ahmadiyya and he would always write letters to the Khalifa of the time. And not only did he listen to the sermons himself, but he also drew the attention of those living at home towards this and would encourage them. May Allah the Almighty enable his children to also carry out his good deeds. Alhamdulillah, Alhamdulillah,